Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Guy Fox and his companions did the scheme contrive to blow the king and parliament all up alive. Three score barrels laid below to prove old England's overthrow. But by God's providence, him they catch with a dark lantern lighting a match. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as financial advice. All views expressed on this podcast are solely the opinions of the host and or any guests that we might have from time to time. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or to follow a particular investing strategy. Hello, you sexy sat stackers, and welcome to a special edition of the Bitcoin Bulletin Podcast, the Remember, Remember 5th of November, or Weekend Update, or Weekend Review. Uh, I'm actually doing this podcast for multiple reasons, the first of which is it is the 5th of November, and the 5th of November has become popular, at least among Bitcoiners and libertarians and miscellaneous anarchists, because of the famous poem, uh, which has been immortalized. Most people probably remember from uh, the movie V for Vendetta, uh, but it's the fifth of the remember, remember the 5th of November is actually the opening line of a 478 year old poem about the gun, Peter, the gun, Peter, the gunpowder treason or the gunpowder plot of 1605. And that was an unsuccessful plot by Guy Fox and other co-conspirators to blow up the House of Lords during the state opening of Parliament on the 5th of November in 1605. The plot failed after an anonymous letter of warning was sent to William Parker, the 4th Baron Montague, Montague, on the 26th of October 1605, who immediately showed it to authorities. Guy Fox was discovered guarding 36 barrels of gunpowder enough to reduce the House of Lords to rubble and arrested. And of course, you know how they treated people accused of conspiring against the king in 1605. So the rest is history. Of course, the other conspirators all fled from London once they learned that the plot had been discovered. So we basically remember Guy Fox. He's the face immortalized in that mask, the Guy Fox mask, November 5th being Guy Fox night. Uh, the uh, main character in the movie v-, v for Vendetta, of course, was always wearing the Guy Fox mask, and he was trying to blow up Parliament as well. So the movie was loosely based around the gunpowder treason of 1605. And speaking of November, fall is definitely in the air here on the beautiful base coast of Florida. It is a pleasant 77 degree day. That's 25 Celsius for those of you who don't do freedom fractions. And of course, this weekend is when daylight saving time in the United States comes to a screeching halt, at least for the next six months, or most of the United States anyway. Arizona and Hawaii don't participate in this ridiculousness. And I heard someone talking about that on a podcast the other day, and they said, well, parts of Arizona does, and it's really complicated. The long and the short of it is all of Arizona does. The quote-unquote parts of Arizona that do not are the... uh, Native American reservations, for example, the Navajo reservation, which is absolutely gigantic, larger than many states or even countries, spans both Arizona and New Mexico. Both 
states, Arizona, New Mexico are in the mountain standard time or the mountain time zone. And, but um, New Mexico observes daylight savings time. Of course, Arizona does not. The Navajo Nation is a independent country, basically, as far as the treaties designated, designated. So state law, et cetera, doesn't apply necessarily on the reservation, at least not to tribal members. And, um, and so they get to decide what they're going to do. And they, they choose to, ce- uh, to celebrate. <laughs> what a horrible turn of phrase. They choose to observe daylight savings time on the reservation. And that's why large swaths of Arizona are on two different time zones. Uh, Reservation law is interesting. So, for example, when the rest of the country raised the minimum drinking age to 21 in the United States, for the longest time on the various reservations, the drinking age remained 18 because, of course, that was up to the tribes. You may be familiar with the casinos out west or in the reservation lands or the swap land agreements they have in places like Florida where they're allowed to have casinos when nobody else in the state is allowed to have a casino. And that's because, you know, the, the tribes are sovereign nations. And that's a tangent. So um, let's get back on track. But I believe those of you listening in Europe already fell back last week. Daylight saving time was extended in the United States because the whole idiocy surrounding daylight savings time was that it was first proposed by Benjamin Franklin in 1874 when he was an envoy to France. And Benjamin Franklin was very witty, one of the most clever of the founding fathers. And so he penned a satire to the newspaper in Paris where he jokingly proposed taxing windows, shutters, rationing candles, and waking everyone up each morning by ringing church bells and firing cannons. Uh, And the reason was to save on candles, uh, help stimulate the economy, because by implementing daylight saving time, you would have extra daylight. And this misunderstanding, or math for that matter, because of this misunderstanding, essentially the concept eventually would spread, and the biggest single spread was during the World War I year when uh, countries believed it would help them save on coal. And, you know, there, there are still uh, economists, well, there are economists who say things like the fax machine will have no greater effect on the economy or the internet will have no greater effect on the economy than the fax machine or that we defeated inflation. But there were economists, there are still economists that say that daylight saving time will save electricity because people set their air conditioning and use more electricity. Um, or they, they use a lot more electricity at night, and if it's dark when they get home and they turn on all the lights, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll save on electricity. And that's BS. Actually, there are studies out there showing it's quite the opposite is true. Uh, and then the other myth out there is that the reason we have daylight saving time is because farmers need it, because they need the extra hour of sunlight to work their farms. I have a Midwestern farming background. I don't. I was born in a big city, but my family, uh, half of my family, one side of my family has a has a midwestern farming background and as a kid i would go out to iowa in the summertime and help grandma and grandpa out on the farm etc and so uh i know a little bit about this and i can tell you that rationale is complete bullshit farmers get up and start working the fields at sunrise in fact they do so below sunrise and it does not matter what time it says on the clock in fact dairy farmers and we had a dairy in my family well before i was born but we have some dairy farming background as well Dairy farmers completely hate daylight saving time because the cows really don't care what the clock on the wall says. They want to get milked at the same time every day. And so uh, every reason why we, uh, why we observe daylight saving time is either because people completely misunderstand uh, the satire that dates all the way back to Benjamin Franklin or they're control freaks. 
And uh, some of that, a lot of that is the latter, because as you know, people in positions of power are in positions of power because they want power and they want to control you. They want to make you eat the bugs. They want to make little manipulative changes to every aspect of your life. And hey, daylight saving time is a really great way to do that, even though we know it causes a huge increase in sick leave because it messes with your body's circadian rhythm. Now, your body, everything about the body, even the Mayans understood this, were based on like the solar and lunar calendar. Uh, you know, there's a certain reason, certain, there's a specific reason certain body cycles run on the same cycle as the moon. Uh, you know, things like coral spawn in, according to the cycles of the moon. Sea turtles come up and nest according to the, the cycle of the moon. Uh, human bodies, animal bodies are tied to natural time you know, sunrise, sunset, and has it, it and the, the whole manipulating the clock to pretend it's a different time is a purely human construct. But I'm getting way, way off track here. Along those lines, by the way, Florida, where I'm at, tried to make daylight saving time permanent, which at least is one way of, of ending the change by passing what was called the Sunshine Protection Act. I believe as far back as like 2016. Unfortunately, in the United States, just because a state wants to end daylight saving time, they are stuck without the federal government giving them approval. And even though our Senator Marco Rubio has introduced a federal companion to the Sunshine Protection Act in Congress every year since, and this year it even passed in the Senate because the House didn't ratify it and Biden didn't sign it, we're stuck at least with another year of pretending that the time is different than it really is. All right, getting back on track. Besides being the 5th of November, we hit another really important milestone the other day, depending on your point of view. If you're a maximist, maximalist like me, it's certainly an important milestone. With Clark Moody tweeting out, for example, that we've now mined 93% of the total supply of Bitcoin that will ever be minted. Uh, the monetary supply on November 1st hit 19,530,68.03 Bitcoin, and that was officially 93.00%. Uh, so there is very little Bitcoin left out there. Now less than 2 million Bitcoin ever to be mined. So it's going to get harder and harder for you to, to uh, stack that coin or for the bankers and, and people that we're currently front writing to catch up to us. And so that's really cool as long as you have a decent stack. As long as you're stacking as hard as you can while Bitcoin is still available for purchase. And along those lines, looking at Clark Moody's dashboard, we now have 93.01% of the supply issued because there are now 19,533,974.28 Bitcoin that have been issued through mining. And along those lines, this is a good time to check the rest of the vital statistics. At the time of this recording, Bitcoin is back above 35,000. It had been porpoising at the $35,000 level for a couple of days. In fact, when I was doing the show prep, it was around $34,800. Uh, but currently it's $35,111 US dollars. And that will score you 2,848 sats per filthy US dollar. And Bitcoin's current market capitalization is $685.8 billion at this price. And of course, I was complaining about humans messing with time. The only time that counts is block time. And we're currently at a block height of 815,470. I'm not going to do the full statistics that I go over on a regular weekend update, or I'm sorry, on a regular DCA Wednesday episode. But the last one I will go over is that for those of you who value your wealth in shiny yellow rocks, 
it will currently cost you 17.9 ounces of gold to purchase just one Bitcoin. Peter Schiff and fellow gold bugs, his fellow gold bugs, if you're listening, you get the price of Bitcoin at you get Bitcoin at the price you deserve. Currently, that is 17.9 one ounce gold coins for just one Bitcoin. And I'm going to reiterate, you know, TikTok next block, it might be months, it might be a year, but sooner rather than later, we're going to be talking about pounds of Bitcoin, not ounces of Bitcoin. Pounds of gold. Uh, I don't know if some, nothing should be distracting me. It's, it's, a, it's around noon. It's a nice day. I got a good night's sleep. Hate breakfast, but for some reason I'm uh, I'm having a real hard time talking today. Maybe it's just because I'm excited that it's the fifth of November, and that's become almost as much of a Bitcoin holiday as Proof of Keys Day. All right, where was I? I just went over the vital statistics. Back to the show notes. There are a couple things I wanted to talk about today, besides it being the fifth of November. One really cool thing that um, broke a couple of days ago was that. One of the largest commercial Bitcoin miners in the United States, Marathon Digital, uh, made it known that they have begun a test project in Utah where they are mining Bitcoin using landfill gas. And there's a couple articles out there, one of which is on Coindesk, which I kind of try to avoid quoting. It's not as bad as Cointelegraph, but uh, the article in Coin on Coindesk was Bitcoin miner Marathon tests BTC mining with mes- methane gas from waste landfill. The article says the 280 kilowatt pilot project in Utah is already operational. And the article goes on to say Bitcoin miner Marathon Digital has started a pilot mining project in Utah that is using methane gas generated from landfill waste to make electricity to power mining operations. According to a statement, the miner partnered with Nodal Power, a firm that develops and operates renewable energy assets for the 280 kilowatt test project. Marathon may expand its methane-based operation if the test project meets its expectations, the statement said. Marathon's pilot project is part of a broader initiative being conducted by the company to validate its ability to capture methane emitted from landfills, convert it into electricity, and then use that electricity to power Bitcoin miners, the firm said. So this is kind of a big deal. Uh, A little bit of background on this, as you know, when when things decompose, when uh, organic biological matter decomposes uh, it, it generates methane gas and they have if you ever drove if you ever driven by or been to a huge landfill and i'm not just talking where people dump their trash on the side of the road but you'll see big vent pipes coming out of the landfill especially if it's one of the huge mount trashmore style landfills that we have here in florida and that's to vent the methane methane that's being built up because if they don't these landfills can catch on fire and they'll basically burn forever in, on a human time frame anyway because you know, there's a lot of methane being produced. I actually had something similar to this happen a long time ago. I was living in Arizona and uh, I, where, where I would, when I'd mow the lawn, I would put it in a mulch pile to use for our garden. And so I had this big mulch pile and, uh, you know, Arizona is a desert, so it usually stays pretty dry and it, and it takes a while for it to decompose. And so it was building up. And then it rained a lot. And so the, the mulch pile got really soggy and I didn't think anything of it. But a couple of days later, I noticed I smelled like a grass fire. And I went out and I'm sniffing around and I saw you could just barely see smoke, just tiny tendrils of smoke wafting up from, uh, from the mulch pile. And so I broke it open and it looked like a campfire. It was just glowing red. Uh, and of course, I poured water on it and that seemed to help 
but it didn't because, you know, it just helped generate more decomposition. And eventually I had to rake the mulch file, you know, the mulch pile completely flat and, uh, and hose it down with water, let it go out. And, and then I had to be more careful managing my mulch pile, but the same thing could happen to a landfill because it's producing a lot more methane gas. And so there are pilot projects around the country where in innovative companies are bringing generators out there and burning this methane uh, and using it to generate electricity. And one of those evidently is modal, nodal power, and they are now uh, contracted to Marathon Digital, and they're using some of that to mine Bitcoin. And I don't think they're the only person doing this, at least not the only uh, company talking about doing it. But this just brings back that infamous Scala Satoshi that Greenpeace commissioned to try and show that Bitcoin's destroying the world. If you buy into that, and the most Bitcoiners, it seems like, don't buy into the whole, you know, we're going to destroy the world by emitting life-giving CO2. But if you do, then, you know, it's also common scientific knowledge that methane traps more heat, way more heat than carbon dioxide. And so burning it off, and which will produce carbon dioxide, dramatically reduces the carbon footprint it's funny because they are emitting carbon, but they're, they're, it decreases the greenhouse effect of the landfill. So Bitcoin is once again saving the environment if you're into that kind of thing, disproving the uh, notion that Bitcoin's going to boil the oceans. Getting back to the Bitcoin aspect of it, though, 280 kilowatts is nothing to stick up your nose at. It's not a megawatt. But for example, if Marathon were mining with S19 Pros, they each use about 3.25 kilowatts, three and a quarter kilowatts of power. Uh, so if they were using S19 pros, they could have a maximum of about 86 miners. And that's still nothing to, uh, to stick your nose at up because I know there's hundreds of thousands of miners in some mining farms, but 86 S19 pros is still a uh, nine petahash. If I'm doing my math right. Maybe I'm wrong. It's still nothing to turn up your nose at because I think one S19 Pro does 110 terahashes, which is a couple hundred dollars for the Bitcoin uh, a month. So at current prices, so that, you know, that's not, I mean, it's a pilot project. It's nowhere as big as, as some of the other mining farms, but again, they're just testing it out. And I think they're going to find out unless they, you know, run into issues with nodal, you know, because they've got some third party risk here, having other people do it for them. But that's kind of Marathon's shtick anyway. They were partnering with other companies, one of which went bankrupt a couple of years ago. If you remember part of the spooky, the spooky minor scare uh, was, you know, Marathon, they were thinking it was going to go out of business because they had contracted to a company that was trying to bring their power online in Texas and it, it didn't work. They had another, uh, most of their miners were in what, North Dakota or Montana. I forget where it was at the time, but that, that power plant had a fire or some major, major malfunction. So they were a significant portion of their hash was offline. That's ancient history at this point in time. But the point being, it's uh, it's it's hard to believe, it's hard to fathom that this isn't going to be a success unless just the operating costs of doing so turn out to be so excruciating high. But even that uh, is relative because we're getting ready to go into the halving. And we do, you know, Bitcoin goes historically goes on those epic face melting bull runs. And so if the price of Bitcoin goes through the roof, then the profitability goes through the roof. Either way, it's cool to see. Uh, Bitcoin out there doing their best to uh, find stranded energy or energy sources that previously weren't even tapped and using it to help secure the network. Speaking of Bitcoin, MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor is still out there hoovering up as much Bitcoin as he can. I reported on a previous episode that he had purchased a couple of thousand Bitcoin in the second quarter, but now information is out for the third quarter. 
And according to the Wall Street Journal, MicroStrategy bought 6,067 Bitcoin since the end of the second quarter, reporting that the software intelligence firm continues to double down on the cryptocurrency. The company co-founded by Bitcoin advocate Michael Saylor, blah, 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 basically says that um, they spent $167 million purchasing, they keep saying the cryptocurrency, but they mean Bitcoin, bringing the company's total holdings to 158,400 Bitcoin at the end of October. So Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy continue to DCA in the way only a Chad like Michael Saylor can. You know, when you start worrying about your stack, you want to be a whole coiner or you want 6.15 Bitcoin or whatever your stacking goal is, 158,400 Bitcoin puts that into perspective. But everybody, you know, has to make their own decisions, set their own goals. And if you've got the kind of money Michael Saylor does, obviously your stacking goal is going to be a lot higher than our stacking goal is, especially here at the Bitcoin Bulletin Podcast, where we stack just 20 dollars of Bitcoin every Wednesday on our DCA Wednesday exploratory episodes. Speaking of Bitcoin and regulation, the biggest scuttlebutt going on for more than a week now continues to be FinCEN's power grab, trying to, uh, you know, the, the uh, then they fight you phase of Bitcoin, trying to corral Bitcoin, trying to capture Bitcoin for the big regulated exchanges. For those of you who don't know, or they just heard the term FinCEN, FinCEN is an abbreviation for Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. It's a bureau of the U.S. Treasury Department that is in theory supposed to combat um, domestic and international money laundering and terrorist financing and financial crimes. A lot of this stems from that BS report that Elizabeth Warren um, forwarded with, I believe it was 100 members of Congress signing on to, claiming that Bitcoin was financing the terrorism in the Middle East, that Bitcoin financed Hamas's attack on Israel. Uh, Most of that has been retracted. I don't think any of the senators or congressmen have uh, re- revoked their signature off that letter, but at least the Wall Street Journal and other financial publications have retracted uh, their statements, as we mentioned in the previous episode, once Elliptic came out and said, not only are you misinterpreting our statistics, that's not even what our statistics said. So either way, FinCEN is trying to come after Bitcoin in the way the United States government typically comes after Bitcoin. I've often said they're not going to try and ban Bitcoin in this country because they know they can't because the United States government has already lost a Supreme Court case on computer code, on code, on software, that it is considered free speech, that we have freedoms written down in the Constitution in the United States that some countries don't have. And I know our government considers that a pesky nuisance. But the way they've been coming after Bitcoin is by trying to make it difficult. And they really don't care if you have Bitcoin or not, as long as you don't really have it, as long as you're just trading IOUs, as long as it's just treated like any other investment and the big banks handle it for you. And that's kind of where FinCEN is going with this. But make no mistake, they mean business because uh, this article's a couple weeks old now, but FinCEN on their own website is openly bragging about coming after quote-unquote Bitcoin mixers. They published a press release entitled, First Bitcoin Mixer Penalized by FinCEN for Violating Anti-Money Laundering Regulations. Their press release says the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network has assessed a $60 million civil money, civil money, civil money, civil money penalty against Larry Dean Harmon, the founder, administrator, and primary operator of Helix and Coin Ninja convertible virtual currency mixers or tumblers for violations of the Bank Secrecy Act. That's a pretty heavy duty deal. You know, 
hanging a $60 million judgment or, or penalty over someone's head. Cause of course, if you don't pay, then, then it becomes, um, contempt of court, you know, or via, or, you know, the, whichever, depending what jurisdiction you're in, there's various ways to turn that into a criminal offense. Like for example, you're speeding, you get a speeding ticket in most places. That's a civil ticket. It's just a fine. You pay it and you go on, but if you don't pay it, uh, then it becomes, um, then it becomes a criminal, a criminal action. You end up with your license suspended. You get arrested for driving with a you know, suspended license or driving a suspended license plates, and then you go to jail. So this is sort of thing that's very progressive. And I believe, in addition to that, they're also pursuing criminal charges against uh, Mr. Harmon as well. Um, but back to FinCEN's most recent insanity, and that's as you know, they've been going after. Uh, after this Elizabeth Warren letter and after the accusations that Bitcoin was funding Hamas, uh, they came out with a proposed rulemaking where they would consider mixing Bitcoin money laundering and then progress, uh, prosecuted aggressively. But what they consider money laundering is extraordinarily broad. As usual, when a government agency tries to make a power grab, tries to expand their authority, they do it in the largest, vaguest method possible so that there's so much room for interpretation that they can pretty much enforce it at their leisure according to their needs, their specifications, what's convenient for them at the time. Bitcoin Magazine wrote an article saying FinCEN proposes insane special measures, saying that FinCEN proposes regulations that would allow them to force, first and foremost, this must, I, I'm skipping it, first and foremost, this must be, uh, I'm skipping forward. Basically, what they want to make illegal is that what they would consider uh, money laundering would be the pooling or aggregating of funds from multiple persons, wallets, addresses, or accounts, and Bitcoin Magazine points out this encompasses so many different activities other than traditional custodial mixing services, such as lightning channels. Uh, this is multiple persons pooling and aggregating their funds together, such as multi-sig wallets held by multiple people in general. Just combining a recent withdrawal from Coinbase of coins you already had from Kraken uh, from the point of view of exchanges and pooling funds would be, it would be pooling funds from multiple addresses. Uh, what they specifically outlined to be illegal would be using programmatic or algorithmic, algorithmic code to coordinate, manage, or manipulate the structure of a transaction. Bitcoin Magazine says, again, that completely covers the Lightning Network. Coin joins, of course, fall into this definition, which is what most people would think of when they think of um, mixing. The article continues, in fact, you know what? This is so ridiculous, ridiculously and absurdly abroad. It doesn't even spe specify manipulating the structure of a transaction to attain obfuscation of the source of funds, that this literally encompasses any piece of Bitcoin software that handles making and signing transactions, 100% of transactional activity on the Bitcoin blockchain out of sheer logical necessity fits into this definition of mixing. FinCEN's uh, proposed rulemaking also says splitting funds for transmittal and transmitting the funds through a series of independent transactions would also be considered mixing as well as exchanging between types of cryptocurrency or other digital assets. So if you convert your Bitcoin to Monero or some stupid NFT, for example, that would be considered money laundering, facilitating user-initiated delays in transactional activities, such as dime locks. You know, for example, if you open a lightning channel, uh, that is a user-initiated delay in transactional activity. That would be money laundering under this proposed rulemaking. And so if you do any of those, then, of course, you would be required to collect and store information and make it available to the government upon request. And that information would be to include the amount of the cryptocurrency transferred both in native units and in U.S. dollar value at the time of the transaction, the cryptocurrency involved, the mixer protocol slash service, et cetera, used if known, 
any addresses associated with the mixer used, any addresses associated with the mixer used, any addresses associated with, associated with the user who mixed. So any address, if you mix, if you use CoinJoin and you have 400 UTXOs on your cold card, but you mix like five of them, the person who ran the mixer or you and or you would have to, would have to report all of your known Bitcoin addresses. The transaction ID of the relevant transaction, the date of the transaction, any IP addresses associated with the transactions, a narrative, basically a written explanation, explaining the context the of the, the transaction itself, what the institution did, et cetera, the user's full name, the user's date of birth, the user's full address, the user's email address, and the user's IRS taxpayer identification number or foreign equivalent. So if you're a US citizen, think social security number. If you're a business, think you know, your tax ID number. Of course, and this gets back to this is my, this is how they're going to attack you in the United States thing. FinCEN carves out an exception for regulated businesses. So for example, if you're Coinbase, et cetera, this does not apply to you. If you were F FTX, this wouldn't have applied to you because, you know, FTX wasn't doing anything illegal, right? So what I was saying earlier, whereas they're not trying to get rid of Bitcoin, they know they can't stop Bitcoin. They want to make it illegal for you to run a node, for you to have your own hardware wallet, your own wallet of any kind, for you to make and send trend Bitcoin transactions. They, but it, you know, if you want to buy and trade paper IOU on Fidelity or trade the, the anticipated ETF, that's just fine because that's completely captured and they know it neuters Bitcoin. Trading paper IOU or buying ETFs. Uh, isn't what makes Bitcoin dangerous to authoritarian governments and particularly those with central banks that can print their fiat currency willy-nilly. Uh, you're not using Bitcoin if you're just buying and selling ETF shares. I think that goes beyond saying. Also in the regulatory front, shortly after last week's DCA Wednesday episode, like it was the next day on Thursday, it was announced that PayPal had received an SEC subpoena. According to The Hill, their article says the SEC subpoenas PayPal over stablecoin. PayPal said it received the subpoena, which asked the company to produce documents related to its stablecoin Wednesday and is cooperating with the SEC. Now, the thing to take away from this, and this is my words, not, not the article in the Hill, is that the Securities and Exchange Commission is going after PayPal for a stablecoin. This is not a crackdown on stablecoins per se. This is the SEC going after a stablecoin. And, and that's important because what is SEC? The SEC, the S in SEC stands for securities. They're the Securities and Exchange Commission. Their authority covers securities. That might mean nothing to you, even if you are in the United States, but it's probably more confusing if you're not in the United States and haven't paid any attention to this because it doesn't apply to you, at least tangentially. Uh, what is a security is defined in the United States as a result of a Supreme Court case. After, you know, the Great Depression, uh, there were Securities laws passed ostensibly to prevent that sort of thing from ever happening again. But then in 1946, the Supreme Court heard a case called SEC versus Howey, and that concerned whether a, a leaseback agreement that some real estate companies in Florida had uh, could be considered a security. And it it was ruled that it was a security, and basically it was a it was it was involving orange groves because at the time most of the citrus that was grown in the United States was grown here in Florida. A lot of it still is the whole Florida orange juice thing. But basically it was a scheme where two real estate companies were offering 
orange groves for sale to people that weren't interested in farming. And what they were going to do is they were going to do a leaseback structure where you purchased the orange grove, but they would continue owning it and operating it. They would hire the farmers to tend to the land, harvest the orchard, the, 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 the citrus, sell the citrus, and then pay you a royalty on it. And of course, that was determined to be a security. And in doing so, the Supreme Court established the Howey test, named after Howey, the defendant in that case. And the Howey test says that something is a security, an investment contract, that is, is a security if it meets four criteria. Those four criteria are, is it an investment of money? Is there an expectation of profits from the investment? Is the investment of money in a common enterprise? And do any of the profits come from the efforts of a promoter or third party? So most, and, and some would say every altcoin, every S-coin besides Bitcoin, pretty much meets all that. But stable coins probably don't. Because number two, the second prong of the Howey test, is there an expectation of profit? Well, the very definition of a stable coin is it's pegged to the U.S. dollar. They don't pay interest usually. If they pay interest, then okay, then, there's the, then, then it's probably a security. But if it's purely a stable coin, uh, then, then it's not a security, right? And in theory, you know, it doesn't have to be a cryptocurrency. Almost any modern banking is a stable coin. Even your cash app, for example is functionally like a stablecoin, right? Because when you use your debit card to load money onto your cash app or to your strike app, they're not actually taking $1 bills and piling up in a corner with your name on them, right? It's it's a representation of money, which is basically what a stablecoin is. It's pegged one to one. You get, you know, you get a one to one credit based on how many US dollars you deposit in your account. And you're not making any profit. It's just, you know, it's in this case it might be in a money, you know, a money exchanging business, which is a whole different ball of wax, a whole nother uh, group of regulations, but your PayPal balance, your your strike balance, your cash app balance are not securities and they're not subject to the authority of the Securities and Exchange Commission unless you're buying stock in the company. But your balance is not a security. And therefore, PayPal uh, is probably not engaging in the business securities by having a PayPal stable coin. If they have some other scheme, like, you know, where, where you could potentially have an expectation of profit from it, maybe. But in my opinion, this is just another massive power grab that we've seen the SEC trying to expand the scope of their authority over and over and over again, especially under this current regime. Gary Gensler and the Biden administration seem to be weaponizing certain agencies of the government. You know, the IRS, for example, has been weaponized politically forever. I mean, if you if you are a, a bundler, um, a, you know, a campaign activist or a backer of the party that doesn't win the presidency, you're pretty much guaranteed to get audited by the IRS specifically because they're screwing with you. And that's so common now that people don't even consider that wrong. They don't even notice that, that it's just, a, it's just the cost of doing business. Right. Uh, but now the sec is trying to expand its scope. And, and it isn't saying that these things lie in the realm of the ether or the, that's the wild West when it comes up, comes to stable coins. It's just saying it's not the sec's authority. You know, there's the commodities, Exchange Commission that, that regulates things like gold, soybeans, you know, other things people invest in. If you ever watched the movie, um, the if watched the movie, the movie Trading Places, it's a probably a forty year old movie with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Uh, it's really funny if you haven't seen it. But basically, uh, there's uh, some commodities traders that want to screw with the characters of Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy by switching their places by switching them around. Uh, Eddie Murphy was a poor, down and out bum. And uh, Dan Aykroyd was a you know rich hedge funder or rich trader at the at the commodities trading business owned by the the two main 
uh, evil bad guys in the in the movie. Anyway, at the, the very end of it, they they find out what's going on and they want. I'm not going to give you a spoiler here, but basically, it, there's a plot trying to involve cornering the market of frozen concentrated orange juice because back then commodities trading was a bigger, more important thing. I think that was that was even before really the bond trading became a really big big thing. So commodities trading isn't isn't something that that's that's that popular at least you know it's not popular with the normies not as popular with the normies it used to be a bigger thing it was the plot of the movie but my point being there is an agency that governs things that aren't securities that still are need to be regulated at least according to the laws of the United States people feel need to be regulated to prevent market manipulation and other criminal offenses but much like anything else you know, the Federal Aviation Administration in the United States regulates airlines, airways, pilots, licenses, things like that. And then we have uh, the Department of the Interior, which manages federally owned land, national parks, et cetera. And that would be similar to them clashing, like the Department of the Interior trying to pass a law saying you had to have a special pilot's license to fly over uh, Yellowstone National Park. And they were going to, you know, they were going to require you to get their license, pass their training, et cetera, and fly by their rules. And there actually have been, I, I say that jokingly, but there actually have been cases where the Department of Interior has butted heads with the FAA. But the point being, these are separate branches of government with separate areas of jurisdiction, and they're not supposed to overlap. And it's it's very common for government agencies to try and expand their authority, and that is that is what the SEC is apparently doing here. All right. Uh, that is basically all I wanted to go over this weekend. There were just a couple of those two big stories that we missed because they either happen Wednesday night or Thursday morning. And of course, today being the 5th of November is always a, you know, an important day to, for Bitcoiners. It's, it's, a, it's a meme holiday for us because you know that was over 400 years ago. It was, uh, it was 170, what was that? What did I say? It was 1605. So it was 171 years before the United States even issued their Declaration of Independence. So long, 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 long time ago, but it's a it's a day that that Bitcoiners remember because of the libertarian rebellious origins of the original cypherpunks that gave us Bitcoin in the first place. And so uh, so I thought it was appropriate to do a, a, a episode today. Everything in the personal life is improving. The things that kept our podcast delayed last week are doing as well as expected so moving right along hopefully that won't interfere with my podcast schedule this week and so along those lines remember to join us on wednesday when we do that dca wednesday episode that is our normal podcast where we meet every wednesday and we stack twenty dollars with a bitcoin just to show that you're not too late and that even if you aren't michael saylor and all you can scrounge up is just twenty dollars that it will still eventually build you a stack of sats that will uh, that will be significant when Bitcoin eventually does hit hyper-Bitcoinization. Oh, one last thing I wanted to mention. The two previous episodes, I mixed up our podcast art. You know, normally our podcast art is basically me holding a symbolic Bitcoin with the beach in the background. It's blue with, you know, a hand holding a Bitcoin, of uh, a representation of a Bitcoin. Not a real Bitcoin, obviously, because that doesn't exist. But uh, recently I was playing around with other artwork, and I put a Twitter poll out there that basically I gave three potential examples for an alternate podcast artwork. And the one that got the most votes was the black logo with the orange Bitcoin behind it that I used on the previous two episodes. If you haven't seen it, some podcast servers just show you the generic podcast episode art. And that didn't change. All that changed was the individual episode. So if you're listening 
on a, on a podcast app that just shows the, the overall podcast art, you haven't noticed. But if you were listening to one that shows the individual episode art, for example, me holding the, the symbolic Bitcoin with the episode number and information under it instead of just that art, in this case, is, is, was that sample. And the poll showed that of the suggested new art, that was the most popular one. The only caveat was that there were those of you who liked the original artwork better. And I'm torn. I like the original artwork. I've been using it forever. And, uh, you know, I designed it and I'm partial to it. The other thing is, I have no idea if this is related or not, but on the two episodes where I used the new artwork, we have had a 50% drop off in listens, better than a 50% drop off in listens. And I'm wondering if that is because people are scrolling through the podcast and they don't see my artwork. They don't see the blue square with me holding a Bitcoin. And so they've just scrolled right by it. Uh, I'm switching back to the original artwork for this episode and we'll see if the listens go back up. And if they do, then that doesn't necessarily mean you didn't like the new artwork. It just means probably strategically it was a bad idea to just shotgun it on people that, that didn't necessarily see it coming. And one way you could have known it was coming is if you reach out to us and or follow us on Twitter. Uh, we have a very limited Twitter following. Uh, we just, for some reason, we never, we never, uh, we never picked up a lot of Twitter, Twitter followers. We have way more listeners than we have Twitter followers. But if you want to be kept apprised of what's going on with the podcast, interesting things that I want to share with you in between episodes or things like you know, when I said the the episode is going to be delayed because we had the family emergency going on or the fact that we were going to be debuting new podcast art. We announce all of that on Twitter and at Twitter, we are at BTC bulletin pod and our Twitter following has dropped off radically since Elon Musk took over Twitter. And it's probably because I'm never going to buy the blue check mark. Uh, so we're getting buried and you don't see our posts unless you're subscribed to us uh, for the most part. So if you want to find out what's going on and you're on Twitter, if you're on Bitcoin Twitter, please follow us at BTC Bulletin Pod on Twitter. Otherwise, we will see you on Wednesday and every Wednesday when we do add to that DCA Wednesday stack. But until that time, keep on stacking those sats, you sexy sat stackers. <laughs>